All right, guys. Today I am with Erin Kenny. She is the author of Rewire Your Gut. Um, she has several podcasts. Uh, she's a registered dietitian with home base in Boston. Um, and we're going to talk today about different things related to the gut, hopefully get into a little bit about fasting and uh, just some of the different things she does, because she's got a really interesting approach to nutrition. So I'm real excited to talk with her. Erin, thanks. Uh, can you give us a brief introduction? Absolutely. So as you mentioned, I'm a registered dietitian. On top of that, I have a master's degree in nutrition. And I really nerd out on science, one of my favorite things to talk about. I'm also a certified personal trainer and a holistic cannabis practitioner. So I have really taken my practice to the next level and really focus on addressing the root cause of why people don't feel well, whether it's um, gut imbalances, hormone imbalances, thyroid, to help them feel better. And I'm also very passionate about the mental health aspect of it as well. I feel like if you're going to do gut things, you have to be passionate about the mental health side, right? Like they're just tangled together physiologically and, and more. You cannot talk about one without talking about the other. Yeah. So um, just so I can better understand your practice and what you do, are you primarily an online based practitioner? Like do you do most of your stuff virtual? Yes. So I was probably 70% online and then the other percent mostly in person. And then after the pandemic, I just went hundred percent virtual and it's been really great for my practice. I work with clients all over the country, not even just the United States. And I really niche mostly in gut health. That's my expertise really stemming from my own journey with having my own gut issues. And also just because the gut is where 80% of your immune system is. It controls so much of your overall health. And so, yes, to answer your question in a long-winded way, yeah. that is hundred percent virtual now. No, but let, yeah, let's just dive into that. So the, the book is rewire your gut. What does that mean to you? Where did the idea come from and, and what, what is it about? Yes, absolutely. So the entire concept of rewiring in general, my business, so I'm the owner of Nutrition Rewired, which is my business name. And this entire concept of rewiring really does stem from my own journey of healing my own gut. So from a very young age, I was exposed to, you know, lots of trauma and stress, lots of antibiotic use, different toxins. And through my own journey of healing, I was really focusing on getting to the root cause. So my issues were very much rooted, um, you know, in, and again, some of these, these main issues and creating new thought, rewiring the way that I viewed um, obtaining optimal health and how I approach health is kind of where I came to the name Re Nutrition Rewired. And so I had, I had digestive issues, but I also had mental health struggles. And so creating these new circuits and new patterns around how I was going to be healing was ultimately what led me to where I am today and why I decided to come up with that name. Gotcha. So did you start as a dietitian or did you start on the personal training side? Like, how did you, how did you tackle this problem of, that, that you were looking to address? So I, when I was in, I was actually still in school when I was addressing my own health issues. And it's actually why I decided to go to school for nutrition. I really, there was nothing I was passionate about at the time. I was a full-time athlete for most of my life. So school wasn't, there was nothing I was, I really got excited about. I liked sports. I liked being active. Um, and so when I went to college, the reason why I chose nutrition was because I figured, you know, if I'm, if I'm wanting to learn more about my body and heal my own body, I may as well, you know, invest in that. So it started in the nutrition and wellness space. And I actually did think that maybe I would go into personal training and I did obtain my certification at that time and started my Instagram, you know, really liked cooking and whatnot. But, but when I first chose a career, it was, it was dietetics. I did go in, right out of school, becoming a dietitian. But I did at one point think that I would just 
be a personal trainer or, you know, maybe a, a physical therapist, but I realized that my true passion stemmed uh, through the power of healing with food. And obviously I still focus on the physical aspect of it. And I do coach clients on personal training and I can create, you know, new nutrition and exercise plans together. Yeah. And I think, you know, obviously those two things go together. That's as a physical therapist, that's why I'm so interested in the nutrition side. Um, you know, so many of our patients with chronic pain or some type of mental health component to their, to their pain issues, almost always there's a systemic inflammatory component to that where, you know, they hurt everywhere kind of a thing. And almost always that comes down to the gut, right? Like a lot of the times there is some digestive issue, belly pain going on with, with whatever else they're, they're in my office for, um, which is what let me down this all right, what's going on with all these gut health issues? Why does it, you know, all my people with chronic pain and fibromyalgia, why do they also have irritable bowel or, you know, pick your, pick your diagnosis. Um, and then from my own standpoint as well, right. We're always trying to, to improve the way we feel as well. So it's super interesting to me for somebody that's not, um, hasn't done as much homework on how the gut and mental health kind of link. What is your, what is your opinion there? What is, and I've looked at some of the research personally, but how do you couch that to clients? How do you talk about their, the interchange between the two? When I talk to clients about it, I, I'll usually kind of start to spark their memory of their own experiences of, you know, when you had to give a presentation, did you kind of have that butterfly in your stomach type of feeling or you know, making the connection of when I'm really stressed, I'm more constipated, you know, just kind of making those everyday, more obvious connections with them. And then I kind of start to explain the science of how your brain and your gut are physically connected through the vagus nerve, which carries an extensive range of signals from the digestive system to the brain. And then I start to talk about how the gut produces serotonin and GABA and melatonin, you know, these neurotransmitters that make us feel good and how those impact the gut and the brain. And then I talk about how 80% of your immune system is located in your gut and how any sort of immune dysfunction in your gut will send signals to the brain. So starting with the everyday stuff, we all can think of examples. Maybe we haven't pieced together, you know, that those symptoms are correlated with higher levels of stress or happiness or a sadness, things like that. But then I, I will start talking about the science and, you know, they always find that interesting and fascinating to know, especially if you're someone who struggles with mental health issues. I mean, it can be so motivating to know that there is actually something that you can do dietary wise to help support your mental health issues. Yeah. I was wondering if like chicken or egg kind of question, right? Like mm -hmm. does the high sympathetic state, high stress cause the gut issues or do you start to get, do you get exposed to something that causes gut and then that leads to different mental health issues? Um, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I, I'm sure it's a scenario based answer, but. I would say there, both scenarios would be true. Absolutely. If you have some, let's say you had like a big blow to your gut, maybe it's high, high doses of antibiotics, or um, maybe you took NSAIDs for a significant amount of time, or you weren't breastfed from a very young age. Um, you know, there are certain things that definitely, you know, can predispose you to mental health issues or gut issues. Um, and then, you know, we see research that says people with autoimmune conditions have higher levels of Prevotella bacteria in the gut. And as you said, is it the chicken or the egg? Don't necessarily know the exact answer to that, but I would say that it's definitely true that you could probably be set up for, I'm not going to call it failure, but set up for these chronic conditions by having, you know, an imbalance of bacteria in the gut. And then also you know, certain conditions can alter your gut. So I don't have a, unfortunately, like an exact answer of, is it the chicken or the egg, but both the chicken and the egg matter. Yeah. So as a, as a baseline, this idea of bacteria in the gut and this imbalance of bacteria, 
How, how does that happen? And then what are some of the steps as far as baseline steps that people need to look at as far as, you know, what are the steps you need to take to fix things? Mm -hmm. There are many things that can cause imbalance in the gut. And I mean, if you look at the research and how many different things influence the gut stress, I would say, I like to bring that one up the most because it really is a silent killer. Like that's what people will turn, especially in the medical field, they'll say, you know, stress is the silent killer. It really is. And when I say stress, I'm talking about mental, but I'm also talking about physical, um, uh, dietary stress, you know, nutrient deficiencies, uh, just improper diet and proper blood sugar balance, antibiotic use, NSAIDs, different types of medications. If you look at the, you know, the, the, if you ever picked up a medication from the pharmacy and they give you that little packet that no one actually reads, right? Um, there's always a disclaimer of here are the side effects. And there's always a GI symptom listed because no matter what you put in your system, especially those types of pharmaceuticals, they do impact the gut microbiome. And then we have certain uh, toxins, heavy metals, uh, like lead, cadmium, arsenic, we have things like endocrine disruptors, which can also alter the gut bacteria. We have some research that looks at glyphosate, you know, one of the, the weed killers that, um, you know, we use for uh, agricultural purposes. We have the type of water that you're drinking might have um, PFAs, these types of chemicals, or also heavy metals. So I'm trying to think if there's anything else I would add to that toxins diet, medications, and yeah, your mental health. Those are some really big influencers on the gut. Yeah. You mentioned breastfeeding uh, earlier, which is mm -hmm. uh, caught my attention because we got two little ones at home right now. I got a two and a half year old who had all kinds of belly um, issues, um, okay. which got me into reading about gut microbiome for infants and toddlers and stuff. Um, mm -hmm. We ended up cutting my wife was breastfeeding. So we cut dairy, my dairy, my wife stopped eating dairy and then mm -hmm. everything got better. Um, but she's still, I feel struggles with some different, our daughter struggles with some different belly issues. And then we got a newborn who is currently breastfeeding. Right. So, um, it's always an interest, but what, what, uh, again, I try to read that stuff, but I don't have that background, right? My background comes from physical therapy. So I understand inflammatory markers and cytokines as it relates to pain, but when I start reading gut microbiome literature, it's like, uh, this is, this gets over my head real quick. There's a lot, it's intense. And, um, and I will say that, you know, not to discourage people because there are a lot of people who can't breastfeed. It's, it's obviously a very personal experience, but I mean, even before you are addressing breastfeeding, like when you're, when the fetus is in utero. I mean, we are starting to develop the trajectory of their gut microbiome even before that. So it was actually thought in research that it's only once the baby is born that we start to develop like what their gut microbiome looks like. But now there's research that says that what a mother does when she's pregnant is are already starting to change the microbiome of what that child microbiome looks like. So I attended a webinar recently and they were talking about the benefits of taking probiotics throughout pregnancy. I won't go too much into it, but when you are breastfed, for example, well, the way that you're born will start there. If you're vaginally born versus C-section, vaginal birth, your gut microbiome will then end up looking like the microbiome of the mother. If you are born via C-section, you skip that process. You are then going to have a, what they've seen as a less diverse microbiome, right? Because you're opened up into the delivery room and they've shown that, that the bacteria of the child and the gut microbiome of the child born via C-section will mimic that of the delivery room. Now, what I will say is promising is that they've shown that the, the microbiome of that individual born via C-section might actually catch up. Like it, it at first isn't so great. So you might, you know, not be so great in the first few months of life, but I forget, I forget what the time period is, but they've seen that you might actually be able to catch up and breastfeeding can definitely help that because breast milk contains immunoglobulins that regulate a, a baby's immune system. 
It contains prebiotic fibers. So these um, beneficial types of carbohydrates that feed the beneficial gut bacteria. And then of course we have all the other nutrients that are in it that were obviously designed for optimal growth of the brain, the gut, the microbiome and things like that. So those first few years of life um, are really essential to setting someone up for you know, reducing their risk of asthma or um, uh, arthritis, different autoimmune diseases, setting them up for food sensitivities and allergies, obesity even. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a long, long journey of kind of things that we're exposed to and, and practices of life that impact what our gut microbiome looks like. So wild to me, like the differences between a, a, even a, you know, vaginal birth versus C-section, like it's crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, I know it's, and, and we've had one of each. So our daughter was, was born naturally. And then, uh, we had a C-section the second time and it'll be interesting to see like, you know, how, how one child gets sick versus the other versus gut, you know, I don't know. Uh, the whole thing is, but they were talking about, I asked. I ask my clients on their intake form, what method of birth they were born. Really? And they're always like, why do you ask that? And I'm like, honestly, I'm kind of doing my own research study <laughs> where I'm, and I do see, like, I see a lot of people who are born via C-section and I see some, you know, mental health, you know, similarities between them. Um, it's not a death sentence by any means, but it's just interesting. You know, you see the difference that we we've noticed in the literature and it, it is, it's, it's fascinating. Right. And I mean, the flip side to this whole conversation is if we didn't have C-section as an option, right. You, you would see less, you'd, infant mortality would go up. Right. So, oh um, yeah, you know, it's not that it's a bad thing. It's just, it's yeah. Interesting. Um, yes. I, I had done some reading about right now, I'm, for whatever reason, I'm into this insulin resistance uh, phase, and I'm reading all about that kind of stuff. And even looking at insulin sensitivity for infants, um, and, and risk of obesity based on maternal maternal obesity, and how insulin mm. sensitive the mom was, and what that leads to the infants uh, insulin sensitivity and, you know, glucose regulation and stuff. Um, again, just you know, I had a professor who used to say, choose your parents wisely. And uh, but <laughs> <laughs> it, it rings true. It really is true. I mean, there, there is so much, like I said, that, that, um, that webinar I attended, I mean, people were, were joining to learn more about, you know, what the child can do and what they ended up learning more about was what the mom can do. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of pressure on us, you know, as, as females, but at the end of the day, you know, when you start thinking about pregnancy, I always tell my clients this, I say, you know, are you, are you ever interested in having children? They're like, yeah, but not for another two years or so. I say, well, we got to start thinking about it now. Like this is the time to start, you know, eating well, making sure your gut's healthy, address any thyroid issues. Like the time is now not, you know, two years down the road when it happens, if we can, you know, there's, yeah human so yeah uh the balance is very unfair between men and women in parenting as far as like in childbirth like we really don't yeah it's it's a very unfair equation yeah but i i've heard like the opposite side of like men saying things like they're kind of jealous of the experience and you know things like that and so i don't know some people look at it different ways i could i could sympathize with both if i said that to my wife she would just punch me in the face probably <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't have kids yet. I haven't got the job. So I could imagine that wouldn't be, a, wouldn't be a great topic of conversation. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to bring that one up. No. Um, <laughs> Smart. So, <laughs> so again, doing kind of some of my own research, it, it's interesting how different foods and different diet plants may affect the gut microbiome. Um, and so again, not talking specifically to any conditions, but how do like, you know, uh, say a carnivore diet where people are a keto diet, where it's a more higher protein, higher fat kind of composition diet versus somebody that's doing, you know, standard American diet versus, you know, a, um, grain based or even a vegetarian type diet. How will those kind of gross differences affect the, the gut microbiome? Mm -hmm. Great question. With a carnivore diet, you're lacking a lot of those prebiotics, right? So you're not going to see lots of fruits and vegetables and whole grains. And 
those groups of foods are feeders. Those feed bacteria, they keep bacteria alive. And so when you're on more of a carnivore style diet, which what they've seen the research is that it just, it can create a less diverse gut microbiome, but it really depends on what the person's gut was when they started the diet. Like if someone had, for example, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and then they started a carnivore diet. So they're not feeding that overgrowth anymore. They might look at that person's gut microbiome and say, oh, it looks really good, really healthy because they are masking a root cause symptom, if that makes sense. With a plant-based diet, you're eating lots of fiber. You're eating lots of prebiotic uh, foods, which are going to feed the bacteria. So what we would suspect, you know, and what we've seen in the research is that creates a more diverse gut microbiome because it's food for the bacteria that live there and it's keeping them alive. And what happens is, is once they're there in the small intestine, and then they move to the large intestine, they become those fibers and those undigested plant sources, they become food and they ferment. And that creates different byproducts like short chain fatty acids and butyrate, which help to reduce inflammation in the gut and strengthen the gut lining. So the main difference is that with a carnivore diet, meat and animal products, they don't, they're not feeders of bacteria per se. I mean, that's not, there's more to that than just that sentence, but they don't, they're not serving as a prebiotic. They don't feed those bacteria. So they have less of an impact on the the bacterial compositions, whereas a plant-based diet really does. It, It would, it would typically cause more diversity in the gut because there's more feeding going on, if that makes sense. It, it does. It does. Um, can you clarify what SIBO is? All of a sudden, mm-hmm. I'm hearing about it all the time. Um, I feel like I never heard about it. And now I've heard about it mentioned just multiple times in the last six months. So what is it in? Um, and then I want to circle back to, to what we we're talking about earlier. Absolutely. SIBO is actually quite common. And it is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. It's exactly what it sounds like. When we look at the GI tract, we have the small intestine and then right below it is a large intestine. And that's when food exits the body. Now, the bacteria that we are talking about in SIBO are bacteria that have migrated from the large intestine, the lower part into the small intestine. So they've moved up and they are sitting in a place that they shouldn't be. And so that's an issue because what happens in the small intestine is we produce, or sorry, we absorb a lot of nutrients and vitamins. That's the main place where we absorb B12 and iron and zinc and all those vitamins. And when you have disruption in that environment, we can start to see nutrient deficiencies and there's a lot of fermentation going on. I mentioned how when the food gets to the lower part of the GI tract, it ferments Now, if things are fermenting where they shouldn't be, we're going to see gas, we're going to see bloating, we're going to start to see um, maybe anxiety and depression, because again, that, you know, gut brain connection, we might start to see more food sensitivities. So it's, it's a, it's a very common thing, but it's also, you know, associated with some not so great health outcomes down the road, especially because like I mentioned, we have these bacteria where they shouldn't be. And that can create inflammation in the body. So is that why, like when people talk about carnivore or they talk about a whole 30 or other elimination classification of diet, do you think that's what's happening that people are finding success with these diets is it's eliminating some of these bacterial overgrowths? Um, Or do you think it's more of a food sensitivity allergy thing? With a, with a carnivore diet, that is kind of my hypothesis with SIBO is these people could have SIBO and what they're doing is they're just finding that if they just don't feed them at all, then it won't be an issue. They're, they're treating that symptom, uh, with the whole 30 and, um, those types of diets. I think the reason that those work are because they do address some of the most common sensitivities. So soy, dairy, gluten, um, processed sugars, alcohol, you know, nobody feels great when they, you know, consume those things. Uh, A true low FODMAP diet. Have you ever heard of the low FODMAP diet before? 
I have, but go ahead and ex- I, I've heard of it. I don't know that I know it as in detail as I should. So if you could explain it, that'd be great. Yeah. So for your listen- listeners, the, the FODMAPs are a group of uh, type of carbohydrate that are, again, those feeders. They, they are undigested, really. They're poorly digested in the gut and they then feed bacteria. And if you have an overgrowth, we don't want to keep feeding those bacteria if you're uncomfortable, if you have symptoms. So a carnivore diet and a low FODMAP diet would be two examples of diets that are not feeding those bacteria. The whole 30 elimination style diets, those are really more designed for people that are looking to identify food sensitivities, um, consume the whole 30, I would say specifically is consuming less processed foods. Well, actually most elimination diets, you're consuming less processed foods. So overall, I think people feel better for multiple reasons, but it's also more so just addressing major allergens or major food sensitivities like the ones I mentioned. Yeah. What is the, like, what is a food sensitivity? Like when people are like, oh, I'm Mm -hmm. sensitive to this. And like, I know myself personally, I did a, our family does this like silly weight loss challenge almost every year between uh, Thanksgiving and, and Easter. And we have to do it every year because nobody keeps the weight off. So we just run it back every year. Um, I have a cousin that calls it the fat tax. Like you just pay it every year. Um, but that's beside that's the point. So good. <laughs> I, so the one year I did a paleo whole 30 style, that was like kind of what I did. Um, this is probably going back at least eight years. And when I reintroduced dairy and gluten, you know, I had lost some weight, my skin cleared up, my blood pressure had dropped. And then I reintroduced dairy and gluten and like my stomach hurts, my blood pressure comes back up. I was sweating all the time. And I was like, ah, this is weird. And so I've kind of recreated many experiments and and I probably haven't done gluten or dairy for, you know, a good five, maybe more years uh, at this point. What is a you know, I don't think I have celiacs. I don't get any kind of like weird digestive stuff. It just, I don't feel as good. Um, sinus infections were the other thing I was on medications constantly and I haven't had a sinus infection. And since I stopped doing dairy, um, what is a food sensitivity? And then what are the differences between this, you know, idea of a bacterial or gut microbiome imbalance versus you're dealing with a food sensitivity and, and how that relates to inflammation? So these imbalances can actually create food sensitivities leading into what a food sensitivity is. It doesn't actually have a standard medical definition. Sometimes it's referred to as a food intolerance. So like an IgG or an IgA response. And these food sensitivities are actually much more common among people who have conditions like irritable bowel syndrome. And the thought there, well, the science there really is that when you have any sort of stress or irritation in the gut, that can lead to leaky gut. And that is now a recognized medical diagnosis is, is intestinal hyperpermeability. So if you think of, you know, a tube, let's say it's like a hose, for example, as your digestive tract, if you were to puncture little holes in that you know, um, in that hose, water would come through the hose where it's not supposed to be. So that means that, that in your gut, things would be moving from your gut into your bloodstream and they're not supposed to be there. So I say this to clients all the time because they say, I'm sensitive to this and and I'm sensitive to that. And then when we heal their gut, they're saying, Oh, I, it feels like I can tolerate, you know, dairy more or, and, and of course it depends on the type, right? I have, I have tons of clients who cannot eat cheese, but can eat a fermented uh, kefir, for example. Um, but back to the point of the food sensitivities, if you have any sort of gut inflammation or intestinal hyperpermeability, your immune system is, is reacting to the fact that something that was in your digestive tract moved into the blood and should not have been there. And so the goal there is to heal and seal up that gut, reduce the inflammation. And then optimally you would, you know, have a food sensitivity that would, would not irritate you anymore. Now, food sensitivity testing has become super common. 
And unfortunately, it's just not recommended by the major you know, organizations who specialize in food allergies. They have not found enough evidence to support the use of these types of tests. So elimination diet is really the standard protocol. Now, you don't necessarily have to have a gut imbalance to have food sensitivity. Some people have hormone imbalance and therefore soy irritates them because they are very sensitive from a hormonal perspective. There are some people who have thyroid issues and therefore they might not do well with gluten because gluten, the protein in gluten looks very similar to the thyroid and their, their body recognizes that from an immune perspective there. So I know I'm kind of rambling again a little bit, but this is the way that nutrition and integrative nutrition works is it's very complicated. Um, but food sensitivities are, are complex. And you mentioned GI symptoms, like, oh, I didn't have any like significant GI symptoms. You don't have to have any GI symptoms to have a food sensitivity. You could be, like you said, tired. You could have migraines. You could have a running nose, like constant post-nasal drip. You could get ear infections. You could have joint pain. Those are all symptoms of food sensitivity, but the food itself isn't always the root cause of why you're reacting to it. Does that make sense? I think so. So you're, you're basically saying that, and, and this is super interesting to me. So the permeability of the gut and maybe that microbiome is probably what's playing into that sensitivity, not necessarily the food itself. That, often, oftentimes that's yeah, the case. That may, that, I mean, to me that, like for my personal experience, that makes a ton of sense. Like, I don't know when I was younger, like high school, college, I used to do a ton of dairy. Like I used to have cottage cheese or yogurt and then go work out. Like it wouldn't bother me at all. Um, but I also had sinus infections all the time. So like, I, I, I've kind of weighed this, like, did this just happen when I got older or is this why I've had sinus infections my whole life? Um, I had sinus infections my entire life and it was dairy for me too. And I also, I work with some athletes who are like Olympic level athletes. And Mm -hmm. if you look at the research, you can induce a food sensitivity by exercising. So think of it this way. Like you just said, the example of how you would eat cottage cheese, then go work out. You could, if you eat something right before a period of stress, exercise is a stress. It can cause leaky gut temporarily. Even Um, you can create a food sensitivity by putting a food and a stressor together. And then your body remembers, okay, I was, it was really stressed during that time. We're now going to kind of hyper react to this food. That makes sense. Very interesting. I mean, I mean, so when I was in undergrad exercise science, I, there was a bunch of research that came out about how chocolate milk was like the best post-workout drink at the right mm-hmm. composition of, you know, uh, carbohydrates and macros and stuff. And so I was doing chocolate milk after every workout because that was like, that was the best and, uh, or, or muscle milk, right. Muscle milk was the other big thing yep. that we drank all the Classic. time. Yeah. And then it was like five years later. And it's like, man, if I drink dairy, I'm gonna, <laughs> I don't feel so good. I'm going to lose it. Yeah. There's a funny, um, you just reminded me. So I went to the university in New Hampshire and I was at the gym a lot because I went from being like an athlete full time. And I was like, what do I do with myself now? So I was kind of a gym rat for a while. And there was this guy at the gym who would carry around a gallon of milk and he would crush the gallon of milk throughout the entire workout and i just always remember thinking in one workout i just remember thinking oh my gosh a how did you just consume that whole thing b if i exercise with like even the smidgen of a wrong type of food i would be out so yeah um one of one of the crossfit coaches that i'm good friends with we have an office inside of his gym um he is he was doing the go mad a gallon of milk a day right like that was the that was Maybe that's acronym. what he was doing. Maybe oh, that's for what sure. it was. For sure. Okay. All right. Yeah. I got to do more research on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a thing. I don't know if it's still a thing, but it was definitely a thing for a while there. That's too funny. I mean, does it surprise me? No. I mean, mm-hmm. you look at some of the health trends out there, I believe it. Yep. Yep. He was big into it. Uh, we actually just talked about it on uh, the last podcast we recorded, how he that's used to do that. Funny. Yeah. That's uh, too good. So... The other side of my, like, how does this leaky gut, you mentioned inflammation or this, uh, 
you know, the, these different things getting into the bloodstream. How does that then play into inflammation? How does that link to autoimmune disease in your opinion? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a ton of research that shows that the gut and autoimmune conditions are very much correlated. And the reason for that is because 80% of your immune system is in your gut lining. It's uh, the acronym is GALT, G-A-L-T, and it's, it's gut associated lymphatic tissue. And so, I mean, that's the most basic way of explaining it is just that your immune function is, is mostly prevalent in your GI tract. So if you have any sort of imbalance there or inflammation going on there, you're going to have immune dysfunction. So the research that they look at is um, also including different types of bacteria and strains of bacteria that are maybe higher in patients with things like rheumatoid arthritis or, um, you know, like lupus, for example. And so they've made these associations between the different types of bacteria in the gut. So there, there's many connections. And then also the, the point I was talking about before about how when you're the proteins and particles that are in the gut move outside the blood into the blood, those are then seen as a foreign invader. And so that's another way of activate, activating the immune uh, response as well. Yeah, that, that's the piece I probably think about or talk about the most is, is yeah. that, you know, it triggers an inflammatory response. Um, and then obviously that neurologic connection between the two has to play somehow or another. Um, and, Absolutely. And oh, yeah. You're seeing that now with these um, neurodegenerative diseases, right? People are talking about mm-hmm. gut health and, and whether you're talking about Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or dementias. Um, what, how do you think that all ties together? Again, just kind of a brief. Very closely related. I mean, you know, it's, it's undeniable the impact that the, the different strains of bacteria in our gut impact. Even, you know, we can talk about Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, but even just, you know, the way you're able to focus throughout your workday or how motivated you are. I mean, the, there's a direct correlation between the two. And, um, you know, there's certain medications that they've done research on too, like acid reducing medications. These are ones that I see so many clients on and these medications, they reduce stomach acid, they reduce microbial diversity, and they're associated with what may be a 90% increased risk of Alzheimer's disease. That is not a coincidence. That's not a coincidence. And so you know, these are things that we're researching the more intense situations of like the Parkinson's, the Alzheimer's. But again, like if you're an everyday, you know, human being, you're just thinking like, gosh, I can't focus. I got brain fog, things like that. Yeah. That's connected to your gut. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I have been toying with intermittent fasting, right. As part of my journey down this, this road. And it's taken some kind of getting used to like the mental side of not eating all the time, but I wear a glucometer for a little while and I'm watching my blood sugar spike all day. And I was like, this can't be good for you. Um, like I don't need, I don't need an insulin response this often. Uh, and so we, you know, we started doing this time restricted eating thing and it's like, my brain clarity is better. Like it just, the only other time I feel that good is right after exercise or, um, if you get like a week off of work and you know, you're just kind of relaxing for a while. Those are the two times where I feel like I'm that sharp, but I can get to the end of a long clinic day and I just, you know, yeah, I'm ready to eat or whatever, but like my, like I feel sharp. Um, Mm. And I don't know how much of that's like sympathetic driven or if it's a lack of cloudiness, like, I don't know which way that is, but it's interesting to me. Um, Are you seeing that mental clarity side with your clients? Oh yeah. I mean, you just see, you know, I've seen clients who are just like completely flat, even when we first start meeting and I'm wondering like, you know, are they just warming up to me? Is it, you know, and you, you just, you can see a personality change over the course of two months, just getting someone, you know, optimally from a gut health perspective and and eating well and exercising and balancing their blood sugar intermittent fasting is, is so popular. And I mean, Dr. Longo, he's, you know, the pioneer of the research in in fasting and, and I love to, to learn about the research there if from a, you know, practical perspective of how to implement that into a, a, a pr- private practice setting, such as my own, 
I don't see females doing well on intermittent fasting most of the time. Um, I see it really impacting hormones negatively. Um, I see males do really well on it. I, I, and I, I think a lot of that is really just due to the hormone differences. And, you know, when we think about what's happening during fasting is you're teaching your body to use an alternative source of fuel and, you know, ketones and ketones, um, you know, can produce a lot of beneficial effects in the body. And then if we talk about gut health and intermittent fasting, we do see some benefits in gut health and the research that we, we've looked at, um, how practical it is for people and what they eat when they're not fasting. All those things are also really important to think about because, you know, there is some research that shows that gut bacterial diversity goes down when you're fasting, but then when you refeed, you know, you get into that, uh, breaking that fast state, you actually see the benefits of the gut microbiome, for example. So people have to be, you know, really diligent about eating well when they break the fast too, not just, you know, binge binging on a bunch of fast food and stuff like that, which I'm sure you're not doing, but, um, there are people out there that love the idea of, okay, I'll just starve myself for, you know, 18 hours and then hello, I just get to eat whatever I want. <laughs> yeah. So I actually started my little fasting journey, uh, Dr. Walter Longo, his book, and he's got the, um, uh, Prolon right their kit. Mm -hmm. And so I did, you know, I, I listened to his book. I forget the title of the book, but I listened to his book. I did the three months of the, the thing. Um, but I did exactly what you just said. Like, I was like, I'm going to test fasting without doing anything else to my diet. And in their little packet, they're like on day six, when you're done with your fast, you have to eat, you know, this, this, and this. And I'm like, screw that. I'm eating everything. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So yeah. you're, you're, you're a perfect example of what human beings are like, like, yeah. that's what we do. We don't we don't go, oh, I'll just have a little blueberries, ease back into it, do some wild caught salmon boiled. Like, no, we're going to eat a freaking burger because we're starving. <laughs> yeah. I've seen some of the research yeah. now on, on Ramadan, right? Because during Ramadan mm -hmm. and, and what they're finding is exactly what you said is that people are just feasting right before and right after. And so they're not seeing the benefits that maybe some of these other research studies are seeing, um, which is also of interest to me. Um, so I want to be respectful of your time here. I don't want to wrap up without kind of a little bit of, you know, what do people do? So not specifically, but what are kind of some of the general topics that you have your clients do or that you, you know, things you think about for clients? Mm -hmm. So let's just pretend that the client doesn't have SIBO, for example, um, or like an underlying issue that really should be addressed clinically, um, always start with balancing out the diet. So protein, carb, veggie at every meal. I don't see people eating the right amount of protein for their body. And protein is essential for your immune system. It's essential for the integrity of your gut lining. So consistency with balanced meals, more omega-3s, um, you know, in our Western diet, we have this imbalance of these omega-6s and the omega-3s. We have way too many omega-6s, not enough omega-3s. So more wild-caught fish, flaxseed, chia seed, walnuts, um, those types of foods need to be, we need to bring those up to reduce inflammation and also increase diversity of the gut microbiome. Um, reducing stress as much as you can, absolutely. Vitamin D deficiency, I see this a ton. So we really need to be checking vitamin D levels because if your vitamin D is low, you're gonna be at higher risk for heart disease, um, IBS, IBD, uh, imbalance in the microbiome, hormone imbalance. Vitamin D is, is responsible for so many different things. Um, what else would I say? Movement. I mean, movement in a way that really aligns with your body. If you are working a nine to five, you have six kids and you are just stressed all the time, it's probably not going to benefit your gut to be adding more intense exercise onto that. So doing things like yoga, uh, meditation, um, light movement to help stimulate the bowels. Um, what else? diversifying the diet. So adding in more probiotic rich foods, things like kefir, sauerkraut, kimchi, miso, those all are natural food sources of probiotics and can be excellent for the gut. 
some of my clients will take probiotic supplements and those can also be really beneficial for some, um, what else do you want me to keep going? I can keep no, going. I think that's day. good. I, I'm glad you okay. mentioned movement. Cause that's kind of like from our end, that's our, that's our passion is what is the right prescription of movement for the working adults? Because it's probably not the same exercise prescription as their favorite bodybuilder on YouTube or their favorite athlete, right? Because that's all those people are doing where you're living this other life. Um, where do you think, and, and again, I, we'll try to wrap up quick here, but where do you think sleep fits into that? Because Oh my gosh. I feel sleep like that's just I've, such an overrated. I've seen so overrated. I do want to come back to, to though your point about the physical activity, the research that I've seen too much you see an imbalance of gut bacteria in a negative way, just the right amount. You see the perfect balance in gut bacteria. So just to tell people like you really can overdo it and it will show up in your gut health. How are now, they defining so, that? I'm sorry. They're How looking are... at the, no, it's okay. Um, they're looking at, so they have kind of a standard of like, what is the healthy balance of, you know, bacteria in a person's gut and what is, what levels are of high levels are associated with negative outcomes. And so they're saying, okay, these people who exercise this many days a week actually had lower levels of beneficial bacteria and higher levels of opportunistic bacteria and then vice versa. Does that make Interesting. sense? Do you have any, do you have any recall of what that volume or intensity was oh no i'll dig it up though i mean it's not it's That'd not that i won't be digging much because i reference it a lot so i'll, mm -hmm. I'll send that to you i can't remember if they specified exactly how much time um but i will yeah i'll send it to you sleep is huge i mean the the hormone melatonin even it acts as an antioxidant and it's really good for gut health and motility um but i've seen clients make all the dietary change, address any underlying gut imbalances, do all the things. But if their sleep is not good, that's going to impact your cortisol. Cortisol impacts the gut. That's going to impact your eating behaviors. That's going to impact the gut. Um, your sleep is crucial. I mean, that is, that is your restorative time. When you talk about fasting, when we sleep, that is like our fast, those really cool, beneficial, you know, biohacking things, those happen when we sleep. And it's, I'll talk about it like a Zamboni to clients. You've got like a Zamboni going through in the middle of a hockey game, right. To clear off the ice when you're sleeping, that's happening in your brain you're clearing away plaque and things that have built up from the day. Same for your gut. You need to have rest for your gut things to clear away the debris from the food that you've eaten to prevent you from getting small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So sleep is so important. I mean, it is very much underrated and I, I think we should talk about it more. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've gotten very interested into that. I think you know, part of me saying, okay, some of my health issues seem to have gotten worse as I've gotten older. Is that because I'm getting older? Is it because I'm not sleeping because I'm working and doing this and doing that? And then the other thing we've been talking about with our clients all the time is morning workouts are also super popular, right? Like get up at five and get your workout in before, you know, at what point is waking up at 430 in the morning to get a five o'clock workout in almost uh, a disadvantage, you know, assuming you're not going to bed at nine o'clock or whatever, eight o'clock the night before, you know, where is that line of, you need to get your exercise in, you need to get your movement in, but I don't think it can be at the cost of your sleep because otherwise you're, you're just cooking on both ends of the candle and, and eventually something happens. Yeah. I'm sure you've heard of the book, um, why we sleep by Matthew that Walker. Walker a, yep. Yeah. Great book. And you know, I, I wear a whoop. So this is, I'm big into like recovery. Oh, there you go. Twins. <laughs> um, are you waiting for your 4.0 still? Cause no, I, mean, I got it. Oh my gosh. All right. I, well, lo I lost, I lost my other one. Cause I, so I was actually just talking about this. The other one, I felt like the battery was dying all the time and I okay. never remember to charge it and I hated it and I ended up losing it. And then they sent me the 4.0 cause I had the membership and I love it. Yeah. I think during the pandemic, everyone became interested in or something, but they, I've been waiting for the 4.0 for months and I'm so excited to get it because it's been, it's been a game changer. I mean, even when I had COVID, it told me I had COVID before I knew I had COVID. My respiratory rate was through the roof and I was like, what? I feel fine. I just ran seven miles, like really interesting, but I'm obsessed with recovery and this is a great tool. And 
you know, I look at my REM sleep every night. I look at my deep sleep every night and you can only like your body can definitely adapt to, you know, get a certain amount of REM sleep in a shorter amount of time. If you have to, if you get in a routine of like less sleep, but your body can only take that for so long and you really can't make up for it. So I always tell my clients, I say, if you have to choose between working out and getting more sleep, choose sleep. There's no reason to put your body in a more inflammatory state. You know, you're not, no matter what your goals are, if you want to get a leaner body, you need to sleep more because you need to rest and recover. So it's never worth it, you know, for the most part for, for people to do that. And I, trust me, I had that mentality back when, and I've learned the hard way. Yeah. We've been trying to couch it as performance versus health, right? If, if you're training for performance, you know, maybe you, you can see where that need to sacrifice a little bit maybe comes in, but if you're just trying to be healthy, I don't think you can win. I don't think you can win if you're not getting to sleep. So I like that. That's, that's perfect. Yeah. It's interesting that, that you mentioned it that way. Well, Hey, I think that's a, a good place to wrap up again. I just want to make sure we stay on time here as best we can. Um, I usually try to wrap up with what do you think, what do you think you're going to be most interested in this time next year? Honestly, I think I'm still going to be interested in the gut microbiome. I think the research is only going to continue to become, um, you know, more in depth and more practical about what we can do. So I think what I'll be doing from an application standpoint with my clients and the care that I'll be able to give, I believe will only enhance over the year, I guess. I think that's probably the best description. And um, I'm excited to see where it goes because we're doing like fecal microbial transplants and you know, that's, that's where it's at right now. So I hope that maybe one day, maybe in a year, who knows, I'll be able to, you know, better, better uh, help my clients with those tools that we're, we're seeing in the research. Yeah. I, I forget when I first heard about it, but I was like, that's so crazy. And then you're like, well, wait, they're showing some pretty insane results with this. Yeah. And it's like, it makes sense, but just the concept of it, obviously people are thinking, how do you, how does that work? You just, you know, you know, you get the gist, you have someone else's fecal transplanted into your body. And, you know, it only makes sense that that would be the most simple way to have someone's gut better your own health. I mean, really crazy though. Yeah, I know it's wild, <laughs> but it's cool. It's cool. Um, yeah. Well, hey, I really appreciate you doing this. This was awesome. I, I wanted to talk to you so much more about insulin and diabetes and and how cannabis fits into that whole equation. But uh, maybe we'll have maybe if we get the opportunity, we'll do it again sometime. I would love that. I'm happy to come on for another episode. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. And if people want to learn more about the content, because you have a ton of content on your website and and obviously you have your own podcast as well, where can people find information out about you and kind of find that dig that up on their own for now? Yep. Thank you. Nutritionrewired.com. Um, I will say this is something like, I'm going to brag about this because, you know, you can hire me one-on-one, but I've had people who have said, they've just listened to my podcast, follow my content, read my blog posts, and they've significantly felt better from a gut health perspective. So take advantage of that free information and always reach out. If you have any questions, I love hearing from people or connecting with people or hearing your own experiences, but this was super fun, Nick. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. Yeah. I hope we can do it again some sometime soon. Absolutely. All right. Thanks. Thanks.